I think there's, I think a lot of people would agree that there's almost um, too much media with a lot of things. Like everyone's kind of reporting on rumor that's not true. Today's conversation is with Mason Cox. Mason is a current member of the Collingwood Magpies in the AFL. We talk about the similarities and differences between Aussie and American sport, his journey through college basketball and AFL, as well as footy media. Thanks for uh, coming on uh, to catch up there, big fella. Um, obviously, it's a time where there's not a lot to do, so great opportunity to catch up. Um, how's everything going for you, mate, with all the spare time? Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's um, it's going it's going good for the time being. Yeah, I've had well, we're sitting on probably what three three or something weeks. I don't know. I've lost track of days now. I feel like yeah, in the isolation and stuff. But uh, yeah, it's going all right, man. Like everyone's kind of had to do this unique way, I guess, of um, keeping fit and everything else. Uh, the first week was probably just trying to figure, out, I guess, what's going to happen with uh, salaries and the season and everything else because played one game and then all of a sudden everything just kind of all comes to a standstill within a week. So the uh, first week is pretty full on, but now I think everyone's kind of got their their different um, you know, workouts and routines and everything else settled in. So hopefully um, we'll be back sooner rather than later. But uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a waiting, waiting game at the moment. Have you sort of worked out how you're doing your like home routines and stuff? Have you been able to talk to the strength and conditioning coaches or high performance staff and get stuff sorted for you or is it just up to yourself? Yeah, so they've got like uh, they've got like an individual program for everyone. So they've, yeah. they've kind of set out, I guess, like running programs, you got weights programs and some of it like it's it's different, obviously. Like you don't have the full weight room at home, but yeah. uh, they kind of give you an idea of like, you know, whether it be lunges or squats and stuff. And then sometimes you might just have to do more reps depending on how much weight you actually have. So uh, it's a bit of kind of give and take with the whole thing, but at least you kind of get an idea of exactly what you need to work out, what muscles and everything else. So they give you a bit of a guideline, but still a bit of um, independence to figure out kind of how you're going to go about doing it. Yeah. So okay. So you're in a, you're in a pretty decent spot then, just health and sort of fitness wise. How's the uh, how's the fam over in Dallas? Um, are they all good, all safe, all healthy? Yeah, they're all good. Uh, they came back like so my brother was here for about three months, um, okay. and he was traveling around and stuff. And then he uh, he went back right before it kind of got real bad, and uh, he went back home and saw the family. Checked in on mom and dad. The other brother came in from Seattle, so he came in. and The whole family was there uh, by myself, and they all just hung out for like a week. And then after that, they all so my brother went to Michigan and stuff, and went into our lake house, and then the other brother went back to um, Seattle because he's still working. So. Everyone's good. Everyone's just like bunkered down. There's um, not really too much going on. Like it's just kind of this unique scenario where I feel like Australia is probably a bit stricter on its, you know, uh, regulations and everything else than America has been. But they've like barely left the house and stuff and just to go out to the essentials. So they're pretty much on, I guess, Australia's, you know, lockdown, but in the U.S. at the moment. Yeah. Uh, but my family's been retired for, or my mom and dad's been retired for two, three years. So yeah. they, uh, they've been quite a bit of time at home anyway. So it's not, it's not too much of a difference for them. But the other brothers are just kind of, yeah, like most people just, you know, have a different uh, way of having to go to work and having to work from home and everything else and just trying to get used to that and trying to get to the routine of that. Yeah, just hanging out. I guess uh, a bit of perspective from you. So uh, just came back from New York, um, stuck in this hotel room at the moment for 14 days in <laughs> Sydney and then get back home to Melbourne after that. Um, and uh, it's, it's interesting to watch the news out here uh, of like New York and, and how much they're just showing mm. the hospitals and, and all that, like what's happening over in the hospitals and Central Park have like a pop-up hospital or, or pop-up rooms um, for patients. And like the day-to-day is still kind of normal. Um, yeah, basically, is it as bad as it looks? 
yeah, it's not it's not too bad. Like in terms of like the day to day, it's pretty calm. Um, everyone that had family would have left, um, yeah. would have left New York, and then people with like houses and stuff obviously would have headed up upstate or like Connecticut, Boston, Florida. Um, so like. The people that are really affected by it are people with visas, obviously the Aussies over there that are stuck for work with visas over there. And then a large, I guess, proportion of people from that are born and raised in New York and, and a percentage of that who are, I guess, on, in a low socioeconomic status that really can't do a lot. Um, I guess uh, a little segue, we'll go back, um, talk about OSU and how you, how you actually got there. You know, you walked on, which is not familiar for, I guess, many Aussies, um, that term. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a long story, to be honest. I, I went to school for mechanical engineering. So I, uh, I played soccer growing up and played till I was graduated high school, essentially 18. Um, and then from there, was went to school at Oklahoma State, had a good engineering program. was like, all right, cool. Never picked up a basketball in my life um, and just played intramurals. So it's kind of like the... I guess like the kind of leagues that you kind of have all the students in to be able to play against each other and still compete in a competitive way um, from going from high school where everyone's playing in some kind of, you know, conference or whatever it is within your system. Um, so just going into intramurals where a lot of those people wouldn't be able to make it to, you know, college system. That's kind of their way of, I guess, being active. So I started playing basketball in that and um, lived in a dorm, little like small shared dorm with another person in my room. And really lived the ramen noodle life of five cent ramen noodles every single day and uh, it was just kind of it's cool man like every day we we all connected on our floor because we all went and played basketball at the local gym and uh, that was kind of how my basketball I guess kind of started like I just kind of decided to to go and play every single day became better and better and better and um, from there was was fortunate enough to have uh, someone from the uh, women's team the women's basketball team at Oklahoma State asked me if I wanted to start helping out with them um, in their kind of like practice squad. So they had probably probably 10 guys, I would say. They, they would call up on a weekly basis and say, okay, do you want to um, come train against us? Um, you guys can run the, the, you know, the plays of the opposition team that we're going to play that week. So there's a girl named Brittany Griner who was playing in the NCAA at the time who was like six foot eight. Like she was massive, like so big. Yeah, she, could, she was like one of the first like females that just would – reluctantly I expect I'm reluctantly just dunking a game and like it was just crazy to see a female do that and that uh, and consistently do it and I was asked kind of somewhat to emulate her at times and that was kind of one of the reasons I got into the program because I needed someone tall enough to kind of I guess play against to kind of I guess run plays against it was somewhat similar to having her in the, in the game so they asked me to start doing that and then from that was fortunate enough that the um, men's team saw me and they were just like oh who's that huge white guy that just plays defense like what like why don't we get him on our team we had a, there's a few people kind of i think not make make grades or something um so i was fortunate enough, i never even had to try out for the like the men's team they just asked me if i was interested in walking on so i was in an engineering class at 10 a.m in the morning got a phone call and missed it and they left a voicemail and said hey man do you want to uh, do you want to be part of the men's team and start doing private jets and flying everywhere and get all this free stuff and I was like yeah I think I'll do that so I showed up that afternoon and started training and it was just like bang everything kind of happened that quickly and was put onto the team and um, it was a walk-on so for people I guess that don't know what a walk-on is it's um, essentially you go into a, a massive team like that and then you don't get the scholarship that everyone else is on the money for going to school and stuff to pay for the bills you're just there um, without the benefits I guess of uh, a scholarship player uh, but just still having to do all the different um, I guess commitments that a scholarship player would have. So you're kind of not the best player on the team by any means, but you're kind of that person that, um, you know, helps the team get better day by day and just puts in, a, I guess, a hard work and effort to be able to try to 
uh, make the other guys better around you was probably the best, best way to put it. So I was fortunate enough to do that. My brother did it four years before I got there. So my brother was also a walk-on for Oklahoma State. So it was that, a cool kind of family experience for myself to be able to go play basketball again, uh, or sorry, play basketball for the first time and uh, get that experience of a walk-on for the second time in our family. And um, it was a cool, cool kind of experience, but it came out of left field, man. Like I had no inclination that this thing was going to happen. What I was fortunate uh, enough that, that my like, things just fell in place. What? Yeah. So it was my third year, I think. Um, okay. So it was second and third year. So I was in the sophomore, junior, I want to say. So you would have been um, like just, Marcus Smart and stuff, like the big boys. Yeah. So Marcus Smart, got to, um, he got drafted the year after I started. Um, yeah. So I had like a half year and then two full years, really. So he um, so he, he started my second year. So like a year, about half a year into it. Uh, so himself, uh, Phil Forsett, with a guy named Markel Brown, who was uh, drafted to Brooklyn Nets. Um, so I started the Spurs and then Brooklyn Nets played there. Uh, LeBron Nash, which was like a number one pick out of high school, was there. And uh, I got people like Brian Williams and Mike Collins and stuff, which were big name players. So at one point we were ranked, I think, top five in the nation. And uh, we beat Kansas and a few times. We beat Kansas at home, which was an unheard of thing to beat them in, in Allen Fieldhouse. You know, like it was the first time in like two, three years that they had lost at home. So there was uh, some big name players we had playing with us and was fortunate enough to, to kind of be the guy in the background that was just kind of get to experience this whole thing with all these superstars, I guess. How did you uh, – so from a football perspective, because that's – college football is what I know super well. Um, you know, if you're in the system, um, even as a walk-on in college football, uh, you're sort of limited to what you can study. Um, I know engineering has so many hours, um, you know, playing basketball playing football at a big time program uh, it's basically a full-time job um so you know you choose or, or you're, you're instructed to choose um courses or degrees that you know fit around that how did you fit basically an engineering degree which is a full-time job in basketball as well man yeah it was it was tough man i'm not gonna lie like it was i was pulling probably an all-nighter a week almost uh, yeah. i was like pushed to the, to the end of my rope and um, it was a challenge somewhat of myself to be able to try to knock those two things out. Like you said, it's almost a full-time job from 5 a.m. workouts in the morning to training in the afternoon and then studying in between and test after that. So, And then you got labs and everything else in between too. So it was kind of juggling two full-time jobs essentially, uh, which was quite quite challenging. But I think um, it was kind of a unique circumstance where a lot of people love the fact that there was an engineer in basketball because it was so unheard of. You know? yeah. It was such a tough thing to do that uh, professors and stuff understood the circumstances and understood what was going on. They kind of give you a bit of leeway as far as, um, I guess, like tests and stuff. Like, if you're going to be out of town, they're like, well, don't stress about it. We'll organize it for another day and stuff. So it was, I mean, it was kind of a unique experience where I probably got a little bit more, uh, just kind of, I guess, I don't know, a little bit more, I guess, leeway as far as that and being able to kind of make up tests, make up, you know, homeports and all that kind of stuff and assignments. But uh, it was pretty tough. Like, it was, yeah, really, really long nights and uh, two years of it, man. And just the travel of every single week, having to fly somewhere for a day or two, come back on the weekends, play, and like just physically be exhausted 24-7, but still try to juggle uh, the engineering degree. It was, it was definitely pretty tough, but I took a business management minor. Um, also during that, just to kind of, I guess, give myself a little bit of uh, more free time and stuff. So something that was not as challenging and probably as time consuming with a uh, business degree, uh, just to kind of take off a bit of the engineering stress. And then, like, so you finished up at OSU. Um, you know, when you, you compare yourself in your sport against your peers, so, you know, like someone like a Marcus Smart for you or, 
you know, when I trained and then I saw um, Michael Dixon kick, I trained with him a couple of times and he's obviously at the Seahawks at the moment and you just compare yourself to him and you just like, Jesus Christ, this guy is a baller. Um, I'm a nobody. Um, did you have sort of plans afterwards? Like, were you thinking about Europe potentially to play some basketball and try and work your way up or did you just want to go to a nine to five, try and pursue that engineering? Yeah, it was, it was a tough one because I didn't really start playing until like my last year. Um, we had a few injuries and stuff and got put on. So, you know, as a walk-on, you don't really get too much opportunity. And um, that was kind of the case for the first couple of years. And then towards the back end of my last year, uh, a few injuries and stuff, and I was given the opportunity to kind of play. And uh, I was fortunate enough I did well and uh, kind of got a spot as the sixth man, the first man off the bench. So a lot of hard work and everything else went into it. But I think from that perspective, it was like I was so new to basketball. Like my first game I'd ever played with, like referees, was my like first year of college basketball. So you can imagine like yeah. college basketball is essentially pretty much a professional sport and walking up and not even knowing how to check into a game because you'd never done it before. And you're just sitting there looking at the guy at the table, like, do I sit, do I you know, kneel, do I, what do I do? And mm. You just had no clue. So it was just like totally foreign to me, which is probably an experience that, to be honest, no one, I don't know anyone that's ever done the same thing, really, um, or even heard of another story where someone's never played basketball before, walks onto a team, just tries to figure it out along the way, uh, which is quite similar to my IFL story, I guess. But it's, um, it is kind of one of those things, you see those players like Marcus Smart and the Markel Browns and stuff, and they do these things that you just look at and you're like, you just, you're meant for the sport. Like you're, like, you're a freak athlete. Like, everything you do, you kind of like, you have some kind of just sixth sense of, you know, how basketball works, where they can make a play that you didn't even see coming, you know. So it's, uh, it's some of those people you kind of see that, like, they do have that little bit of extra that you can tell is definitely going to get them into the league and get them into the NBA and be able to have a successful career after. So myself growing like becoming new to the sport so late, the chances of me going over to um, to Europe to play or something like that were, were quite minimal. Like, it wasn't really anything. I had I think there was one or a couple of people asked me to go to this, like, kind of combine thing to go – shoot around stuff but like man my jump shot was terrible like I, all I could do is rebound and pass it out to someone else because that's what I did as a walk-on so it's kind of like oh all right but um that's the whole AFL thing kind of came up and I had, well, I had a mechanical engineering job at Exxon Mobil which was number one on Fortune 500 you know top company in the world at that point or in the U.S. at the point and uh, I accepted a job and stuff down there before this whole kind of AFL thing you know, kicked off so it was I was, I was going to go work this nine to five job um, for an oil and gas company and do that. And that was kind of my career. My yellow brick road after university was going to go and do that. And then obviously this whole AFL thing kind of threw a spanner in the works. Yeah. So I guess um, footy started for you um, and you got to look in. Um, I guess you did, you did the combine um, and you did obviously well enough for, for teams to have a look at you. And then you got to choose between a couple of teams. You obviously chose the pies. Um, how was first preseason, or I guess the first time you came to Australia and watching a game, and then signing on with the Pies, choosing the Pies, and then rolling into the first sort of training session, meeting all the teammates, uh, meeting the coach, and then you know starting it all over again in the new sport. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was pretty. Well, I was pretty shell shocked first time I saw AFL. Like I'd come over for. We'd gone to the combine in Los Angeles, done that, and then they asked if I want to come to Australia. And I had two weeks here with my brother. You know, I think our first game we saw was in Geelong, Geelong versus North Melbourne. And um, we totally ignorant to the game. We got there. We had no idea kind of how many points, you know, things the two big posts were worth and couldn't even, like our six, you know, math tables for sixes was not great. So we're trying to calculate the score every single time. And 
Uh, we just got to the point where we're kind of just laughing about the whole thing. I think Geelong came out and their like team song was quite funny because it was kind of this childish kind of just, I don't know, weird like kid hype up song and they're just running out as grown men to it. So it was kind of, and then we realized every team had one of these things. So we were kind of laughing through the whole cultural experience of what AFL was. And um, yeah, we got to, to see that first game and that was kind of cool. And then we got to meet all the different coaches and different teams. And it was unique because these people were kind of, I guess, praised and put on a huge pedestal, whether it be a coach and players and everything else. But myself at the time, I had no idea who they were. They were all just normal people to me. So whether it was the Eddie McGuire's, the Damian Hardwick, I had no idea who they were. So I just kind of treated them as is. Um, yeah, I was fortunate enough to get a few different contracts and stuff from a few different clubs and then obviously chose the pause. But um, that first, I guess, experience going into my first kind of season and stuff, I spent two months um, while everyone else had gone off for holidays and stuff after the season had finished, I stayed here. Um, and showed up and just kind of was given a crash course what AFL was and how to play it. So you imagine a guy never picked up an AFL ball, but sudden now I have to play with professional athletes that have played their whole life. And, you know, we're, we're donned as some of the best in the, in the world at this game. And I had never even heard of it nor picked up a ball barely at that point. So for myself, it was like, all right, cool. We've got two months of crash course to try to figure out and try to get up to scratch to even be able to train with these guys, much less play with them. So um, that was kind of my first two months was just trying to get my kicking, handballing, all the basic skills down and just be able to get my fitness up. And then uh, I've gone into the first kind of couple of training sessions. And obviously there's a few things that you didn't really pick up and a few kind of laughing moments that everyone kind of enjoyed, you know, kind of giving you a, giving you a crap for. But um, it turned out to be really kind of struggling and trying year, I think, that first year, trying to understand what everything was and knowing that you're going to stumble and fall over and fail and fail and fail before you'd actually start picking it up was which is probably one of the hardest things, I think, was getting through that to realize that there is potential on the other side. But you had to go through all that pain and annoying and struggling of every single time trying to have a kick, knowing that you're not going to have the best kick ever because you haven't been kicking since you were a child, you know. So it was uh, just trying to do the basics well was uh, like a very much a struggle for the first year. And then once you kind of got that, you felt like you can kind of go on from there. When do you think you were uh, legit? Obviously, you know, everyone would have got around you. Um... The, like your teammates and stuff would have got around you because, hey, you're from America. Everyone loves basketball. Everyone loves American sports in Australia, right? So everyone would have got around you for that. But like fitting in in terms of like your skills and, and knowing where to run and, and knowing, I guess, the IQ of the game. Yeah, it was, oh, it took probably about half a year to three fourths of the year playing in the VFL, which is like the two of the AFL. So um, I was playing with that. And then I think it was just kind of every game you kind of pick up things, you know, like you. I mean, the first game I played, you know, I'd never played with umpires on the field, really. So they're pointing the opposite direction. and I'm running the wrong way of where I should be running and stuff like that. So it was, it was kind of like every single game. You sit there and you, you do stupid things that were really, you know, idiotic for someone who's watched the game all the time. Then you go back to film and you go, okay, I learned that lesson. Now apply it to the next one. So it's probably like halfway, three-fourths of the way through. And you kind of start picking up on things. And it becomes second nature where you don't really have to think about a lot. Whereas the first few games, everything is such a thought from the simple things of, you know, going to mark a ball or going on a lead or doing rock stuff or whatever it was, it was everything had to take so much mental capacity, I think, to be able to do that where you didn't really play in a free, like free-flowing, you know, mental space. So I think about three-fourths of the way through, we played a game against Richmond. I think I kicked five on the day and that was probably the first time in the VFL where I was like, all right, cool. I feel like I'm playing on instinct now. It's not necessarily having to think about every little thing you do. You're just doing it based on what you've been told and what you already know and it was second nature now. So that was probably the first time and that was yeah like I've always I guess I'll you kind of fit into the culture of clubs because everyone loves American sport here and everything else but you get to the point where you start to realize that you're not the same as everyone else you're always going to be a completely unique and independent individual so 
Um, I've never really, I guess, 100% fit into that Aussie culture of like footy and all that kind of stuff, you know, but uh, you learn just to kind of be your own individual and do your own kind of thing. And um, yeah, it's just everyone. Uh, it's a good thing about Collingwood, I think, is everyone accepts everyone for who they are. And we've got many different characters in the league, and, um, and especially at our club that we just kind of embrace as their own. I remember watching that game, actually. I uh, don't know where I was. I remember watching that game, posted a photo of you uh, clunking one on the Instagram account. So it would have been 2018, September sometime, finals. Um, but you had like the swagger when you hit a three um, in basketball. Uh, you know, when your QB uh, slings a ball to the wide out, he catches, it's a touchdown. Was that innate to you? Yeah, I think, well, that game, so that 2018 game, you're talking about different from the, that VFL game I was talking oh, about. Okay. But yep, yep. In, that, in that 2018 game, it's probably going into it, given the background and the backstory of it, was like we were playing Richmond and it's, it was a semi-final, they call it a preliminary final here, but it's just a semi-final of, of kind of like um, playoffs, essentially, is what it is. And um, Richmond had won probably 20-something-odd games straight at the NTG or something ridiculous, where they were a powerhouse that just was looked at as unbeatable. And um, we were kind of looked at as you know, a team that finished 13th the year before and then finished in the top eight the next year to make playoffs. And um, no one really kind of gave us a, a chance and stuff. And I think we matched up pretty well with them and everything else. And I think on that day, it was a bit of an underdog story where um, no one really gave us a chance, much less some guy from half a world away that barely knew what the sport was. And, um, yeah, you start clunking a few and stuff and, um, and have people talk smack and Aussie rules, you know, it's, it's very, you know, everyone talks trash to each other. It's just kind of accepted, you know, and it's, um, it's just what it is, but you're not allowed to really boast about it. So it's, you can talk smack, but you're not allowed to kind of show about it. It's kind of this weird, I guess, in between that you're allowed to do. But um, the old school way of thinking is you cannot, you know, you can't celebrate after goals or anything like that. But I think in that game, it was, it was such a statement for our, our club and our, our team at the time to, to knock off a, a top team like that um, and make it to a grand final or a Super Bowl that, um, uh, yeah, people say there's a bit of swagger with it, whatever you want to call it. But um, I think it's just a bit of confidence of just, showing people that like we are better than what a lot of people thought we were um, and I think the fact that no one really gave us a chance and everyone was talking us down to, to be this team that was going to get absolutely smashed by this other team and we come out on top and probably beat them by 20-30 points whatever it was um, it was definitely a statement game for us and it was it was something to say like we're here for the long run we're going to yeah, give a shot at this, this grand final this year and it, it might be our year and unfortunately it didn't happen uh, lost by kicking the grand final or the Super Bowl but I think that game was definitely one of my um, – they'll go down, in, obviously, in my career as one of my better games and something that will probably be a defining point in one of my uh, – uh, in my career. So. Yeah, you are – you talk about how people – or, like, you're not supposed to celebrate. And I guess that's, like – it's a big thing, like, tall poppy syndrome back home or, like, here now when I'm in Australia right now. But um, over in the States, everyone's like, gets around. And what do you find, I guess, the biggest mm. differences between AFL and American sports? Like, I compare AFL to more college football, college basketball than I do the NBA and the NFL, just because the NBA and the NFL are like different beasts. Like, it's so crazy, like the cutthroat nature. You know, in the NFL, nothing's guaranteed. You know, I've made that, you know played poorly last season and had dudes come into trial for their position while they were still on the team and then got cut and those new dudes got the spot um, and all their stuff got chucked mm. in the garbage bag and they were done. Um, so I find like 
that's probably a better comparison. What is what is your thoughts on it all? Yeah, it's, it's probably about right. Um, and it's it's tough to sit there and say like AFL, you know, the second of a professional league because it's not really. But I think the amount of money and stuff that's in, you talk about the NBA, NFL, MLB, um, allows it to be ruthless within itself because whenever there's that much money, it is technically pretty much just a business, like and it's running as a business where. You look at the AFL, AFL owns every single club, so it's kind of like the NCAA owning every single university. So uh, with the NBA and stuff, it is cutthroat, man. Like you, like our contracts at least are guaranteed. Like a lot of them, you know, like if you play crap for a couple of months or get injured or whatever, they can just cut you and bring someone else on see you later. You never heard of, you're not really taken care of by the team. So it's, um, it is a very cutthroat business, but there also is a lot more money in it. So you might be making a lot more money in a lot shorter time where you're in the NBA or the NFL, whatever it might be, than having a longer career in the IFL and not be able to make nearly as much money. So it's, uh, there's different things, I guess, aspects to it. But I think from the college standpoint, like you have a team that you, you stay with for a certain amount of years and you're kind of attached to that team. It's similar to IFL. Like you, in IFL, it's kind of looked down upon if you move teams or if you, um, you know, are looking around and stuff like that. Like there's very much like you should play for the same team for your whole career kind of thing and be able to, I guess, have that attachment to, that kind of fan fan base, whereas I think it's changing now, given the fact that you know sports become international almost now, so it's changing. But it's it is quite I guess comparable to the NCAA, where it's everyone's kind of underneath the NCAA umbrella, which everyone's underneath the AFL umbrella here. Um, clubs aren't owned privately by anyone; they're literally owned by the, uh, the supporters and the people that pay for season tickets. So um, it's similar to that in the sense that the university, I guess, you know, owns. It doesn't really own it, really. It's, it's owned by the NCAA technically, but um, the fans and everything is what makes it uh, successful by putting enough money in to put in the proper um, stadiums, to put in the proper locker rooms, everything else to lure in these recruits to be able to come to their university. So it's, it's quite similar in that aspect, but it is very unique in its own where it's still the top level in professional sport, but has aspects of NCAA where it's still kind of run by a higher power, if that makes sense. And what I think in terms of like the, the, the passion of the fans, it's more like comparable to the passion of the fans in college sport because, you know, like the NFL and the NBA people aren't as sort of fanatical. You know, you look at your supporter base, Collingwood, uh, the people that support Collingwood, I don't know how many, what your memberships are now, but it's like 90,000, something crazy. Um, people go in week in, week out. They have the specific spot they sit in. Um, you know, they're crazy, like mad. Um, would that yeah. be an accurate sort of description for you, Matt? Yeah, it's, it's, it is. Like, people here are absolutely insane. Like, it's probably the most densely populated supporting group for one sport in the world, I'd say, in Melbourne. So, um, it's very unique in the sense that everyone is very much – and it, it, it really is intergenerational. Like, there's a lot of people, you know, their granddad supported them, their dad supported them, their kids supported them, they supported them. You know, keep going down. But um, I think it's kind of similar with – you look at university and it's like, oh, my, you know, my granddad used to go here. My dad used to go here. And it's kind of passed down from generation to generation. And the supporting group is just crazy, man. Like they go absolutely insane at, you know, sporting events. And whenever the team plays, they go crazy for it. And I think, like you say, like NBA and NFL and all that kind of stuff is a bit more corporate. Like it is a bit more uh, people have kind of made it and kind of want to, I guess, you know, go to a game to maybe have a box or whatever it is to show their friends around and try to make connections with other people, et cetera, et cetera. They're not the people who are going to dress up and go crazy with like, you know, proper, like they wear like a, a nice polo to a game, not wear like the actual, you know, jersey of the team they're playing. Like they're not fanatical fans like that, where 
I feel like everyone in the IFL has like a jersey of the team they support and has a scar for something like if they were at the game and it's like proper like that. And it's it's kind of cool because everyone can pretty much or most people can afford it. Like a, a ticket to a game is actually re- relatively cheap. I mean, you look at a Cowboys game, like you're not going to be able to get a game ticket for under like 150 bucks where you can almost get like three to four game tickets for, for the same price here in Australia. So it is to the point where it's still very affordable for any kind of person to be able to come into a game. Or I think in the U.S. it just becomes such a big beast that they actually are kind of losing, I guess, the everyday supporter and the people who are sometimes the most passionate, but maybe can't afford that, you know. So it is this kind of weird dilemma and going back and forth of it becoming more online and becoming more at home. And through television, there's a lot more rights and a lot more money and everything. But they're kind of losing that passion of the people who probably are fanatics of that sport and of that team, which I think in Australia, we've kind of somewhat been able to to keep that tradition alive of, of people being able to go to games and, and have that experience. Um, I don't think it's nearly been lost nearly as much as the U.S. Yeah. Um, but what I've found like more recently, let's say last couple of years, um, just with the media side of things, like it's pretty crazy in Melbourne. How have you found that? Uh, I guess dealing with that. Yeah, it's, I feel like in Melbourne, it's very much the Wild West with media. Um, there's probably a lot more people that are accredited media people than probably necessary. Um, and not only that in a negative way by yeah. any means, because obviously these are the people that kind of help drum up, you know, interest and stuff in the sport. But I think there's, I think a lot of people would agree that there's almost um, too much media with a lot of things. Like everyone's kind of reporting on rumor that's not true. And then that becomes truth because someone else is reporting on it without the actual factual information behind it. So and that happens in the U.S., happens all over the world. I mean, you look at Twitter, people will go with a story because some average Joe bloke, you know, down the road over it was said that something's going to happen and they take it as fact and they go run a story on it. And it's just not even close to true. So it's, um, it's a unique thing. I think like everyone, you know, tries to beat that wave of, you know, information coming out and being the first one to it that sometimes the actual um, truth to it doesn't come out correctly. You know, it's, a, it's, it's, father, or it's, it's falsely kind of put out there. So I think in, in Melbourne, like there's a lot of attention on sport. Like I said, I think it's the most densely populated supporting group in probably the world. So you got to think that there's that many people that are interested and that many people in day-to-day life where these guys aren't getting paid millions of dollars, aren't getting paid all this kind of stuff, but have that kind of attention on them. And you're going, well, that doesn't really make sense. Like these guys are going to get coffee at the same place I get coffee and have to do the exact same other stuff that I have to do. You know, like they're not, you treat them as these kind of people on a pedestal, but really they're just average people. Like they're not, they might make a little bit more money than most, but they're not making an exorbitant amount of money where they're, you know, living in these grand mansions by any means or anything like that. So it's this kind of weird thing of, I don't know, like everyone kind of wants to be in your business and every reporter wants to know every single little thing about you. And, you know, they'll, if, especially like you said, if you're out of contract, there's a million rumors that go around and, like last year I had a rumor that I was going to move clubs and didn't even know I was on a beach in Sydney and people were telling me I was getting traded to another club. And I was like, Oh, first I've heard of it. So it's, um, it's a unique kind of thing where media is somewhat, it's a bit of a, yeah, like I said, it's a bit of a wild west. Like you never, you always got to take everything. Yeah. With a little bit of question to it. Like you're like, all right, well, yeah, that might be true, but I'm going to wait till the facts come out of, from that person directly. You know, you're not going to sit there and, um, I guess go on rumor because like I said, the rumor mill goes around and then people start taking rumors as fact. And then that turns into a story that's not even any factual information to it. So 
it is a, I think people enjoy it here though. People like the rumor mill. People like to talk about it. People like to drum up interest, you know, people think, Oh, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? You know, especially times like now where there's not really much going on because everyone can't play. People have to fill the airways. People still have, you know, TV and, and radio and everything else that they still have to be able to, to fill the time on. So it'd be interesting, I guess, over these next few weeks, especially whenever there's a lot of questions of people's salaries coming up and what the league's going to do with games and everything else. There's a million rumors going around, but no one actually knew the truth with the people that were involved in the AFL. So I think once, um, I think in a few weeks, we'll kind of try to get better, a better idea of kind of whenever we'll start back up. And I think the rumor mill will probably start churning again once that happens. And who knows what will go out. And you talk about like salaries um, and there's been like talk about making salaries public in the AFL. And I don't think no Aussie sports have public salaries. I don't think and, you know, there's always ranges in every story about this guy making you know, 500 to 600, this guy making three to 400 over four years or whatever. What are your thoughts on, um, you know, making salaries public in football or Australian sport? Like my personal opinion is probably doesn't need to happen. Um, but, you know, people are so interested, as you're talking about. Everyone wants to know everything. Um, yeah, what, what are your thoughts, mate? It's, I, don't, I don't agree with it. I don't think there's enough money in it to be able to, to justify that. And I think it just puts, on, it puts added pressure not only on the person itself, but also puts added pressure on the club and the recruiting staff and everything else for making either a good decision or a bad decision on a player. So, like, at the moment, I think it's unique to Australian sport. And like I said, there's not enough money in it. Uh, people will sit there and dissect every $10,000 on someone's contract just to say they're good or they're not good enough for whatever they're getting paid. And I just don't – I know, like, there's, there's, like I said, there's rumors that come out that say whoever, you know, whoever's getting paid this amount of money, but, like, there's no actual factual information behind it. Like, you can sit there and say that, but it's all hearsay at the end of the day because if you somehow got that contract, that's technically someone's done something pretty dodgy along the line. So – um, it's all it's all rumors, man. Like I think it's good to have people's you know, personal life and their financial life to separate. And if they want to tell someone, they can tell someone. It's just like anyone else in this world that you have a job, you can tell everyone your salary if you really want to, or you can keep it to yourself. And with ourselves, I think everything is so public already. You know, like I mean, if you sit there and go out to training and you go and do a hamstring, it's the front front page of the paper the next day for a lot of the teammates and stuff. So. It's one of those things, I think it's one of the very last things that we can actually have as our personal life that we can deal with in our own personal way. And once you kind of strip that, it just becomes everyone's just up for, you know, all kinds of just kind of media scrutiny and everything else that there's not really a necessity to have. Yeah. What a, obviously you've wrapped up your studies. Um, what are you like thinking about doing, you know, doing host footy? Yeah, like I'm, I'm kind of starting up a podcast and stuff, somewhat like yourself and uh, doing a bit of that. Um, and I'm trying to really kind of see if there's um, a bit of a market. I think there's a massive market, especially with the fact that Australia is a smaller country. We're kind of more flattening the curve a lot better in other countries, you know. So I think there's an opportunity for us to come back and start playing sport before really anyone else in the world does. So it's a unique opportunity, I guess, out of this whole kind of negative thing to be able to have without competition, without, you know, other people taking away eyes on television and stuff around the world with the NBA, NFL. NHL, MLB, whatever it might be, there's no one else playing. So it's this whole thing of people strive for sport, man. People want competition. They want something live. And if AFL is the only thing on with no other competition, it's going to be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the U.S. to catch on and reach that market. I mean, there's only, what, 24, 25 million people or something like that in Australia, and there's like 330 million in America. So if you can just capture 1% to 5% of those people in America, it's going to be a massive 
financial boost for the IFL to hopefully come back from this thing because obviously they've had to take a, a huge loan against their name to be able to to be able to survive for this. So if we can, you know, if I can somehow help that out, make those connections, try to try to make that a thing in the states where people will start catching on to AFL again because back in the day whenever ESPN first started. AFL was actually played in the middle of the night and people started kind of catching on. And there's a lot of people asking questions and they're like, oh man, I used to watch this, you know, way back in the day, like, you know, the 80s, 90s, and was like, this is the craziest thing ever. So I'm uh, working kind of with the AFL, doing this podcast and working a few things on the side to try to make connections to hopefully whenever, uh, if we can come back before the other sports to be able to sell it to the US and say, look, this is this amazing game, half a world away that you know nothing about and you think is rugby, but it's actually a totally different sport, man. And it's like the craziest thing you've ever seen. You got to check it out and then get them hooked. As I know that like a lot of them will. And then hopefully it's, um, it's something that we can, you know, be able to kind of go forward with. And if the AFL, you know, wants to hire me on as some kind of international ambassador for it, then great. But I think it kind of gives me this, I'd love to do something in the media once I'm done. Um, engineering, I'm still interested in doing that. So I'm, I'm talking to people about doing an internship once things calm down. And um, you know, I get citizenship and then just also having kind of a broad umbrella of things that I kind of want to be able to dip my feet in. So then, Whenever this kind of ends and whatever happens, if something happens or, or something comes up, so I have an opportunity to to be able to go down one of those paths and kind of, I guess, go to full time you know, job and career through it. Then I have somewhat of a, a background in it. Wait, I was in the states when um, you know Pat McAfee was obsessed with uh, AFL. I don't know what game it was, and then you sort of walked him through what the game was. So I feel like that could be a huge opportunity if you guys, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, everything goes super well and you guys can get on back on the park. And, and you know, I think um, he loved it. So, and there's a lot of, obviously, a lot of Aussie boys and girls over in the States with college sport and, and in the pros that, that love it as well. They just, you know, want to speak about footy as well. So, you know, great, it would be a great opportunity. Are you... Uh, are you thinking about like sticking out in Australia once you're done with footy or you want to head back home? Um, do you miss back home? Um, probably not as much as a lot of people think. Um, it's a very different, unique like kind of way of growing up in the US. You know, like everyone in Australia, I feel like because there's two, three major, four major cities really in Australia, a lot of people stay in the same city their whole life and, uh, and don't move around and don't live other places. Where in the US at 18, a lot of people move from home to a university experience that kind of become their own independent individual and pay their own bills and learn all these other things on how to be independent and live on their own that you don't feel the necessity to come back and nor i guess like the connection to your hometown as much as probably people here do have so i think myself like oh yeah like don't get me wrong like i miss the family here and there but overall it's kind of like oh i'm just experiencing the same thing i probably wouldn't be living in dallas anyway if i was back home so I'm just in a different city, just a lot further away. But yeah. I'm still going to see my family, you know, like two, three times a year. Like they'll come over one time a year uh, and I'll go back once or twice a year. So, and I'll spend a legitimate amount of time back there. So I'm not really necessarily, I guess, missing home by any means. I still get plenty of time to see family and everything else. But once my career ends in AFL, hopefully later than sooner. But um, yeah, I'll just hopefully, you know, I'll, I'll have something here. But it's going to be a lot of it's going to be what's your opportunities in Australia compared to the US. And I think now that I've been in Australia for, six years now like I probably have a lot more opportunities here through people I've met and connections I've made than I would have in the U.S. going back and saying oh hey like it's been six years since you know we last chatted or whatever it is you know or a year or two and trying to keep up those old um, I guess kind of connections and stuff that you don't really have as strong because you're not physically there uh, where these other people who you might have met through footy and you know blood footy and seen you and got to know you and stuff through a million different avenues um you kind of have a better connection probably with them in australia than you would back in the 
myself, I'm probably at the moment looking to stay in Australia and hopefully get a job once footy's done and all that. But I hopefully can use my unique skill set and experience of playing AFL and, and going through all the different, you know, hoops and ladders and everything else that I've had to go through uh, to be able to kind of pass that on to someone else and find something that, you know, kind of mixes both of those careers up to be able to, to experience that and share, I guess, my, uh, my experiences and try to help other people out that kind of want to do the same kind of career path. Yeah, mate. Um, is there any uh, things you want to plug, uh, you know, your socials or, or your podcast that's coming up or any other projects that you want people to sort of, um, you know, look out for? Now's your time. Yeah, so I'm doing a podcast, The Greatest Game That Was, uh, is what it's called. And it's called The U.S. Revolution, I think is the name we're going to give it. Uh, we haven't released it or anything yet, but we're going to go into it hopefully in the next couple of weeks. We'll probably start releasing stuff. But yeah, the socials, man, just Instagram, Twitter, the same, Mason 16 Cox, all in letters. Um, gets my height. Uh, <laughs> it probably solves a lot of questions without having to go into it too deep. But uh, yeah, just that, man. Like, I think just following the um, the story of, of uh, American sports and AFL and hopefully getting eyes on it, you know, and, and spreading the word is probably my biggest thing. Yeah. Cheers, mate. Well, appreciate uh, catching up um, and we'll speak soon. Yeah, sounds good, buddy. Well, yeah, hopefully the two weeks in isolation isn't going to scare you crazy. But once you're back in Melbourne, we'll have to catch up properly after all this. Yeah, for sure.